0: And welcome to an episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast that I dare say, I might say, I shall say is going to be a touch more combative than uh, the norm. My name is Quentin Smith. I'm on a podcast about board games. Joining me is Tom Brewster. Tom, are you on a podcast about board games? I am
1: thoroughly strapped into a podcast all about board games.
0: Now, you didn't know this, but I realised very soon after the last board game night where we played the two games we're going to be discussing on this podcast, namely Crescent Moon, a war game set in the Islamic Golden Age, and Bear Rays. Uh, economic game set in the... Uh, the what's now. the opposite of a golden age? The, the hellscape <laughs> of now in which you trade stocks and shares. And Tom, I think we disagree on... Both of these games. Oh
1: my goodness! It's a war. It's a full-on punch-up. It's a battle for the ages. It's going to be uh, like a
0: boxing match. Two men will enter, and and two men will leave. But some of them will be one one, one or both of them will be more bruised than yes. the other.
1: One of them will wake up
0: a little bit sore, or maybe even both of them. And the other one will wake up thinking I
1: really got the better of my opponent. Yeah. And last, the other one will night, think. I'm going to spring back better next time, more ferocious than ever. We should have we should have like betting odds on this podcast. At the top of the pod, oh. you know, you can bet who's going to be the slam dunk winner. This is just, this is a really unhealthy way of approaching conversation, isn't it really? Well, you yeah, know, it's, it's deeply unhealthy. And it's like <laughs> us
0: trying to bring a bit of Twitter's energy into the Shut Up Is Down podcast, <laughs> which nobody wants. Uh, oh God, when I heard the news that that Elon Musk had bought a 9% or whatever it was stake in Twitter yesterday... My friend really dragged out the the reveal. He was
1: like, oh, you're never going to guess who's bought 9% of Twitter. And he made me sit there. That is a really think, horrible magic trick. That's like, you're you're sort of like pulling, you know, handkerchiefs from your sleeves. And then some of the handkerchiefs are just like, Whole terns. Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon Musk.
0: <laughs> or, or Elon, yeah, a, a, a feces-smeared handkerchief with Elon Musk's face on it. I do like your idea of betting odds, though. I would encourage anyone, before they finish listening to this podcast, to go to shutupsofdead.com, leave a comment on this podcast saying what you, which of us you think is going to win this <laughs> fight. Um, because some people will say conversations don't have winners. You know what I call those people, Tom? Losers. Losers. Yes! Yeah. Absolutely. Let's go! First on this podcast, we are going to be talking a bit about Crescent Moon, the new released from uh, hot, hot, hot uh, British publisher Osprey Games. And Crescent Moon is designed by Stephen Mathers and has artists primarily by Naveed Rahman. Uh, now, Crescent Moon is something that I find very, very exciting. And this is immediately going to annoy Tom because it's actually the same genre of games that I've been complaining about and being contrarian on (laughs) um, for many years. So what Crescent Moon is, is a slim little box with a big experience in it. This is a war game set... uh, uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, so actually, uh, do you want to give a preamble as to why this whole segment is going to be annoying for you?
1: I don't think it's going to be that irritating for me, but that did sound like an ad... like. Straight up advertisement for Crescent Moon. Oh, um, I
0: thought you were. Yeah, well, I thought you were going to say it sounded like I was talking about an advertisement for Pax
1: Premier or or root or, root, which, or Dune or any other number. No, I yeah. think I think that you think I don't like Crescent Moon more than I. I quite like it, but I think you you think I hate it or despise it. No, or want it I don't set think you ablaze. hate it.
0: But you are totally fairly being like, Quince, I've had to listen to you complain about some of the best, like what what are popularly considered some of the best war games of the last few years. So that is Root. That is Pax Pamir. Those are the, the coin games. That is also the Dune strategy game, which recently got re-released by Gale Force 9 with a little, uh, with a, a bit of touch of um, touch of new paint on its design. Um, and so Crescent Moon is very much within the genre of those games. But, so as you could guess from this discussion, I, out of the gate, after just one play, Tom and I are going to play it again very soon. Um, but after just one play, I think I like it more than those games. But who's to say? Who's to say? <clears throat> so the, what it has in common with all of those games is Crescent Moon is asymmetrical. That means all of the different sides you can play in this war game don't play quite like one another. And, well, okay, there's a lot going on here. So, Crescent Moon (laughs) is set not in a particular period of history, but during a kind of. Uh, an era in the Middle East. So it ranges from sort of like stuff that was happening in Persia or maybe the Ottoman Empire or all kinds of countries that were kicking around during the Islamic Golden Age that I don't know the name of because my grasp of history is limited and targeted on certain areas. And that's very embarrassing to me. But Crescent Moon um, is really trying to deliver a lot of love to this era of history. Um, Not just in, you know, I don't know, deciding to set a board game here with sultans and caliphs and other words that I'm reading up like there's a, there's the murshid. um it's the board is a desert made up of hexagons there are beautiful um palace, uh, little wooden palaces done up in an islamic style so we have um a very thoughtful very um what's the word what's the word I'm looking for not gentle but um considered mm. depiction of uh an area of human history and like that doesn't doesn't often I mean generally in games if you're in the Middle East it's not to celebrate Islamic culture right? I'll say that so I am delighted that Crescent Moon is kind of um, let giving us a setting that feels fresh and also timely, and maybe, well, if not timely, then certainly late. Um, so huge props to St- Stephen Mathers and Osprey Games for deciding um, for to set this up. Uh, but hey, if you're listening to this podcast, probably you want to hear about that gosh darn board game. Yeah! So here's here's what we've got in Crescent Moon. This is a war game. It's asymmetric, which you can play with either four or five players, which is quite limiting. We chose to play it with four because um, the fifth player that is introduced... Um, if you're playing with five, is the Nomad faction. Mm -hmm. And Tom, you and I heard that and thought, that sounds like a faction that's bolted (laughs) on. The Nomad, oh, they have no home. Is that because you couldn't figure out any geography to give them on the board that would fit in a four-play game? It's not true at all. We were actually quite wrong about that um, because after playing our game of um, Crescent Moon, we've read about the Nomad and I'll get to that later. But the basic setup you have is this is, in many respects, if you imagine a kind of standard war game, so there are little wooden pieces representing armies and little wooden pieces representing strongholds, so like forts, little wooden pieces representing cities. The board is made up of hexagons. There's fertile land, which is which generates money. There's quarries, which generates tons of money. There's desert, which is useless. There's a river that winds through the map that um, and only has one crossing, which I quite like. And... It, playing this game you're going to be marching armies around you're going to be trying to take territory you're going to be collecting cards that sort of like strengthen your armies or your abilities um, so so far if you imagine like a very very traditional kind of 80s war game you're bang on the money um, but then where things get foxy are in the different factions that you can play so it's tricky to know the order to go through these because they all <laughs> lean on one another like you know in a house of cards or something where like you've got four playing cards that are all leaning on one another so no one is like yeah. the foundation that's why that's one of the reasons why Crescent Moon is kind of annoying to teach. But um, we're going to start with, ooh, I think, the Caliph, probably. Yeah. That, Tom, yeah. you played the Caliph. I did. I think that's the... You did? Did you? Well, no, we won't get into whether you have fun. We'll, 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 <laughs> I did! We'll, if you, okay, good, good, good. Right, right. So the Caliph is playing the thing that is probably most similar to a traditional war game. Correct me if I'm wrong, Tom. Um, yeah. But because you are the faction that gets points for how much of the board you control, you want to spread out, you want to build defenses, and you just want to control the board. What am I missing about the Caliph?
1: Yeah, you're pretty much bang on there. But I think the interesting thing about the Caliph is they're very defensive or reactive to the other player that they're kind of opposed to, which is the Warlord, right?
0: Mm, yeah. Uh, so the warlord um just gets points for smashing things. Um <laughs> the caliph the caliph scores points for however much of the board they control at the end of the round. The warlord, you know, they're you know, the warlord, like everybody, wants to control the holy site, which is a special hex. But mostly the warlord wants to get into fights and smash things. They get victory points and money for every army they destroy. They get victory points and money for every fort they tear down. They get victory points and money for every city that they sack. Um, so the warlord is kind of like if you imagine the vagabond in route, but but unlike the vagabond in route, kind of playing still playing the same game as everyone else, the warlord just wants to make a ball of soldiers and roll them around the board like a board like a catamari destroying stuff. Um, that puts them at odds with the Sultan, who's a third player. Now, the the Sultan is fun because the Sultan is the only player who can build towns and cities. And the Sultan doesn't actually care about how many armies they have or what territory they control. The Sultan just cares about how many of these cities, which are neutral, so the cities don't intrinsically belong to any player, it's just whoever's on that hex. Uh, so the Sultan wants as many cities to be on the board as possible. And the cities are cool because the cities generate money for the Sultan, wherever they are, as well as generating money for who's holding them. If the Sultan happens to be holding a city, that city generates money twice, which is ridiculous. Once because the city just exists and the Sultan is the lord of all this territory, and another, and once again because the Sultan is controlling that hex. So now we have like a kind of a, th- a three- player ecosystem where the Caliph wants to defend and the sultan wants to... So the sultan has, as what's described in the manual, a symbiotic relationship with the caliph, because the sultan builds cities, and then the caliph wants to sit on them and defend them. So that makes perfect sense, right? Well, no, because what actually happened in our game, and I think one of the reasons you won, Tom, Mm -hmm. is that I was very content giving you cities, which then generated you money, generated me money, but you got a little too powerful. I mean, you also held the holy site, which generated tons of victory points for you, but the sultan actually wants to create a balancing act, kind of... but seeding the board with cities, but letting some of those cities be kind of fed to the warlord so the warlord gets stronger so the warlord can bash the caliph. Now, faction number four, and the fourth and final player in our game is the Murshid, And the Murshid is... Very funny. There's like a sub layer of like what's called political influence. So in addition to those, like there can be an army in a hex, which shows who owns that hex. Um, there is a uh, another system called political influence, where basically in addition to who's got the armies in a hex, there's also who's got the ear of the politicians in that hex. Who's your little fingers and your varuses from Game of Thrones? Uh, who do they work for? And so the Mershid uses this secondary system and the Mershid wins by spreading as much influence as possible. But... The Mershid, and the player in our game who controlled the Mershid, had a delightful time doing this. The Mershid, uh decides who wins ties, as long as there is a battle happening even just close to anywhere they have influence. The Mershid also has this unique ability to fling cards into a combat that they're not even involved in, um, and they can sell this ability to players for the cost of victory points. But, they only get victory points if the player they're helping actually wins the fight. So there's a there's a whole bizarre negotiation that the Murshid is almost happening, ha- having with themselves. And again, just like the Sultan, the Murshid doesn't want anyone to get too powerful, while also they are trying to make themselves richer. There is the Nomad as well, but goodness gracious, the people listening to this podcast have heard me rattle on about a whole bunch of words uh, so far. So to clarify, the four factions we played with were the Sultan, the Caliph, the Warlord, and the Murshid. And then we'll talk, I think, a bit about how our game went and some initial impressions. And then I'll talk about the Nomad, who we haven't played with, but we're about to, because they really they I can't overstate how much the, the Nomad is actually kind of a revolutionary aspect of this game that we chose to ignore but you know who's to say that makes well, it
1: they maybe yeah. are we haven't played with them yet Tom when I tell you what they do I guarantee on this podcast you're going to go
0: oh <laughs> i think i was quite keen because
1: i don't use the vagabond that much in root and i was very keen to sort of dismiss the nomad as being a sort of vagabond-esque sort of secondary character but it sounds like they're more instrumental into the the actual balance of the game as intended almost
0: Mm -hmm, yeah you are the internet's number one vagabond hater but that's because you've played about 900
1: games of root about 16 billion games of root
0: yeah that's correct yeah 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 so um yeah, goodness gracious. Where should we start with this discussion? I, I'm not I'm not going to interrupt you or argue with you. Do you want to just candidly talk about some of the difficulties you had with this design? Well, I, or, I, or, or, or some of the fun you had?
1: Yeah, I, I guess, like, because I don't want to be too negative on Chris Moon, because I, ultimately I think I really like it. I think it's good and it's exciting and it's got these systems in it that I really enjoy. Like, it's got all those things that I like in games like Root and games like Pax Premier. And I do want to play it again. I'm really excited for our next game. I want to see what The Nomad brings. But I do feel like that first game... It wasn't maybe firing on all cylinders, which is kind of to Mm -hmm. be expected. But I'm kind of unsure if it'll ever be at a point where I'd prefer it over its comparisons, basically. That's kind of where I felt like I landed on it. And for you, that would be Root and Pax Premier, maybe? Maybe And and maybe Dune as well, honestly. I think Dune is a more apt comparison to some of Crescent Moon than than I was previously thinking, where it's not a game, you know, Crescent Moon doesn't have factions that are so asymmetrical that they're fundamentally playing like different mini games. They're just factions that interact with the systems in different ways. So I'm thinking about Dune, how, you know, like, one player just gets all the money from when the cards are bought um, which is a system that exists in crescent moon right you can buy yes cards from someone else's faction but you pay them um, i do
0: actually think that while root and pax premier are close bedfellows to this dune is maybe the closest because yes. dune is also a very straightforward war game with a lot of negotiation where every faction is is totally wonky compared to the others well, not that, that, that's actually an exaggeration. I think every faction just has an area of the game, Cosmic Encounter style, that they warp and bend.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. Like the way that you were explaining Crescent Moon initially was like, each faction has sort of one action that they can't do, or they do radically differently to the other factions, rather than necessarily it being like, you know, you are, you know, for example, the otters in, in, in Root. You're playing an entirely different game to the other players around the table, even though it's taking place on the same board. Um, but there's some some stuff that I really like like I really like that there's this really smart design work in the turn order like how the warlord always starts the round so they're striking at the beginning of the turn as this sort of offensive player and the Caliph always caps off the other end with this sort of like defensive base building kind of assertion of their territory and I think that what's interesting about the game is you have this like very direct two faction conflict you have the Caliph versus the warlord and that's what sort of forms the bedrock of the game it then just gets wrinkled by those other two factions that kind of have a little bit of political intrigue within the middle section
0: i think the sultan and the Merchids did make for an interesting pairing as well because both of them aren't direct i don't think me or the other person playing the Merchid barely attacked ever in our game except where we were sure we could win but both of us had this delightful mechanic that i really love of just trying to keep the other factions in balance by you know the sultan has the sultan shop and where, where the sultan <laughs> has a special side market where they can offer cards to any other player for any price they want
1: yeah and there was a lovely moment when at the early game you were very keen to have me protecting your towns and cities so you were offering cards at the Sultan Market for cheap or I was like, oh, I can't quite spend two can I buy this for one? And you were like, okay and then at the end of the game I went to go and buy cards I said, can I get anything from them? No no, you can't. You're not allowed <laughs> I anything I told you to the, the, the price market. was 9999 9, 9, 9.
0: <laughs> and then I also told the Warlord that the Warlord should visit the shop because I had a fire sale and would give him stuff for free, which like which was just really nice. Look, uh, oh, there's another small mechanic, which, because you and I are boring let's talk about um, it's a very boring additional rule but while all the factions score victory points in different ways there's a thing I've not seen before in a war game where all of the factions also have a turn one objective Mm. now if you've played something like Twilight Imperium you might be familiar with like players I don't know, playing too defensively or not aggressively enough. Within the comparatively simple uh, infrastructure of Crescent Moon, which underneath all the wonky jazz asymmetry on top is a very simple war game, you have stuff like the Warlords by the end of turn 1 gets a bunch of victory points if they have built up a big army. Mm. And the Caliph gets points if the Caliph has taken a bunch of territory. So while the game has this, like, you can set up different maps and you can set up armies differently within those maps... Every player is incentivized um, to build their forces in a certain way. So that going into round two of the game, the game is absolutely mm. a foot. Round two of our game, if everyone's pushing their objectives, we'll see the Caliph having taken a bit too much territory to really be able to defend it. The Warlord has built up a huge army that could smash anything. The Murshid has spread some influence quickly, so they'll be manipulating fights like, already within you know, round two of the game.
1: Um, And the Sultan's built up a bunch of cities, I think? Yeah, a bunch of cities ripe for smashing.
0: Yes, exactly. So it feels like, you know, you still have that nice kind of tabula rasa at the beginning, where the game could go in any direction, but then the players have kind of built themselves a nest that can only lead to excellent kinds of conflict. Um, you know, about 25% of the way through the game.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I was going to say, you're thinking, you know, you're building up these things for the second round of the game. You're ready to fight in the second round. Second of three rounds in it's the awful. whole game. if awful. you play the long game. Yeah, I don't know whether we felt like a long game. I don't know where we landed on, whether we should have played a long or a, or a standard game. I think I felt pretty satisfied by the end of our game, but that was 12 turns, I think, collectively. Three rounds, yeah. four turns each. So it's pretty snappy.
0: So I think that... I was really alarmed because I think twelve actions or you know didn't sound like a lot to me. But um, the more I've thought about, because I mean, the more I've read about it as well, um, it is very much designed as a negotiation game. And Mm. even though our table didn't know what we were doing, there were still really pleasant, juicy chats. That, like, it felt like I don't know. I've played so many games of Twilight Imperium when negotiations just become hostile and someone immediately becomes upset. Whereas Crescent Moon, I think, because you are all roles that are so defined, like, you know, as the warlord, you can't be annoyed when the Sultan is a jerk to you and nice to the Caliph because that's what your book says is going to happen. Mm. And like, I didn't notice a feel bad moment in any of the negotiation of like, I don't know, Chris causing me to lose battles because he used his merchant powers to make the other side win ties or me selling cards, you know, as the Sultan. It, It felt amiable. Yep, And listen, I wanted to, because otherwise I'm worried I'll forget that I'm going to say it. I think the big thing that makes me feel really favourable to Black Crescent Moon and very excited for a second play is that when I think... Because you, totally fairly in our game, were saying like, you know, Quinns, like, this is so close to so many games you've been so mean to. <laughs> and and that that's like completely fair, but it caused a lot of reflection on my part. And I went and thought back about my Dune review and about my Root review and... And like the thing that frustrates me about a, a huge thing is Dune is that that game can be over in an hour or it can be over in four hours, you know, right. or like the Game of Thrones board game. you you A player around the table could have just an absolutely horrible time in that game and it could be frustrating. And like even Twilight Imperium, it feels like sometimes I sit down to play that game and I don't get the experience that I want. Crescent Moon feels honed to create the same kind of experience that will more or less be done in the same kind of time. And, like, that clock on the game is absolutely huge. The fact that victory points are invisible is absolutely huge. Mm. It, like, it avoids my one of my bigger problems with Root, which is the victory point track and seeing that you are losing.
1: Well, I... I think that that, just because the victory points are face down doesn't mean that, you know, people don't know who's in the lead because it was very clear that I was in the lead in that game. And I had the thing which exists in route, which people bemoan, which is, you know, bashing the leader. That last round, and I felt fine about it because I felt like, well, I'm in the strongest position. I stand a good chance of weathering that storm. But in that last turn, it was very much, how do we get Tom to lose and anyone else to win? (laughs) Oh, but that last round of... Okay, first off... The the key line in
0: my Root review was saying that whenever I finished a game of Root, I was like, oh, that was almost satisfying. And next time I play, I'll, you know, the almost, the next time was what ended up defining my Root experience. I always felt like if I learned a bit more, if I got a bit more mastery, I would have the fully satisfying experience. I will say this now, that game of Crescent Moon that we played satisfied me in in a way that no game of Root did. Because even though I lost... I loved how the final round shook out because like you say, we all knew that you were in the lead and we all knew that we had to bash you and we failed to do that because of a marvellous interaction where the Warlord, in just becoming a bit greedy, went for a undefended city of mine rather than yours. Mm -hmm. And then Chris, after after that, and it felt very thematic, after the Warlord failed to take my territory, um, Chris snuck in as the merchant and said, well, now I can have it. And then Chris underestimated me, and then my first action that final round was to say, well, actually, now I can take it back from the Mershed or take some different territory. And it was me and the the Mershed player and the Warlord player all looking at one another being like, we all started this round knowing we had to crush Tom. <laughs> and we all got greedy and attacked one another. And then there were like four points between you and me for for the victory. But I, I'm going to get... I'm just going to throw in the Nomad now because I feel that you and, you and I have had some really interesting discussions about this, but I wonder if I can... Uh, I, you said you had fun. You said you were uncertain about the full game. The Nomad, I think, could make you really excited to try a five-player game. Because you'll remember how um, the Caliph and the Warlord could summon sort of standing armies, but they would partially sometimes hire mercenaries. And also the Sultan and the Mershid could only hire mercenaries, which had that little camel token. Yeah. Um, the Nomad is two things. Basically, any any player wants to hire mercenaries, which for the Sultan and the Mershid is all the armies they will ever have you can only ever buy them from the Nomad at a cost the Nomad decides. Mm. So the Nomad sells the entire armies to half the players in the game at a price they have. You'll also remember, Tom, that the Sultan starts the game with like 21 money compared to the other sides which start with like three or six money. Yes, Right? Yeah. The Nomad, uh, so the, first off, the Sultan will have no armies unless the Nomad like, decides to sell them armies. Sec- but the secondary thing, the Nomad's victory points are bought by the Nomad every round by the Nomad spending money. Mm. Also, the Nomad has an action that they can spend their entire turn removing any Nomad units. So, you know, any Sultan or Mershid troops or any, you know, mercenaries the Caliph, war I have. The Nomad can just take an action and remove them from the board. Gone. Yeah. That's that's your turn. So basically, <laughs> the, like half of the infrastructure we were using in our game is instead now leaning on a fifth player who is exclusively out to get money, cares about nothing but money. And I feel like that would just set the negotiation of the game onto another level because everything is now going through a fifth player who is and like, I think it is a far more interesting version of that thing in Dune where one player gets all the money from uh, players shipping units onto the planet.
1: Yeah, I, I would be interested to see h- how that shakes out. Like, I want to play Crescent Moon again with five player, but we've talked a lot, right, about excitement about this game and the things that are good. Quins, I want to tell you about my problems with Crescent Moon. <laughs> I want to talk Let's about go. the fact that I don't think this landed for me nearly as well as like other asymmetrical games. And you're right, that it is frustrating to hear you sort of praise Crescent Moon. And I get that there's differences in the design. There's like more sort of like smoother edges to Crescent Moon there are to these other designs, but it's definitely frustrating to think that like, this is a game that is doing very similar things to a lot of those other asymmetric war games. And I don't think this is my favorite exploration of those systems. And I think it's like the thing that I find really frustrating about Crescent Moon is I think it's kind of this halfway house. I don't think it landed with the the same impact for me as it did for you. And I think some of that might be to do with like the presentation of information in this game. You haven't mentioned Mm -hmm. that every player has these player guides that everyone gets, which are four pages of A4. And sure, right, the information on them might be very, very similar across the board, but it differentiates enough that you can't just have a central reference card. Every player is going to be thumbing through this four-page booklet every single turn. And also, I think that that kind of hidden information almost means it's harder to read the intent of players uh, around the table other than the Warlord.
0: Here, OK, I was I was letting you talk, but hidden information. First off, one <laughs> of those four pages is just filling up space with like information that could fit on a reference card. One of those pages is just tips. So yeah. really, and one of those pages is an action reference of which ninety percent of it is similar across all the races. The third page is like so really, you've got one page which is similar to what you have in root, which is what actually differentiates the sides and that's how they score victory points, and that is the special powers that they have
1: yeah but well but, but it doesn't matter how much like how much of this information is the same or whatever. The fact that for the whole game, I felt like I had to have that big reference book on the table and be looking at it constantly is just took me away from the game and it took me away from understanding what was going on. Like, there's this list of actions that were explained at the start, that I only felt like I got to grips with on the third round. There's an openness to the strategy that might be really welcoming to some people, but for me, I had almost no direction as to what to do on my turn, aside from oh getting God. some things onto I, the board. Getting and th- you're telling me you want to play
0: a distant plane? You're <laughs> telling me that's something you want to have? Because all of these criticisms are like,
1: fractionally true of, co- of GMT's coin I games. I think that a distant plane is a, is a whole separate box of frogs. The coin games are a whole different... Thing I think that my I thought about that and I don't think it's an app comparison. Dune is definitely the most app comparison, and then I think Root is a close second to that. But I want to hone in on like what I like about Root, and I think what I really like about that game is that ultimately reading intention in Root is pretty clear for my money, and that might be different for you. But in Root, to me, it's obvious what each player wants to do if you teach it and say this player gets you know most factions in Root get points in the same way, which is destroying stuff or they get extra points from doing one thing. They have an extra bonus, like the birds, they put their roost down, it gets them points. You know, the cats, they build stuff, it gets them points. The Vagabond does quests, it gets them points. And that's quite a straightforward way of understanding the game. For Crescent Moon, everyone has their first round objective and then they have, so everyone has the objective to control the holy site in some way, but then any number of other additional objectives or objectives for controlling territory that are much harder to pass. No, there's only one.
0: The Warlord gets points from Smashing Stuff, the Caliph gets points from holding Territory, the Sultan gets points from Cities, the marsh gets points from
1: Influence, and the Nobody gets points from Money, that's it. I guess my problem with it is that none of that felt apparent or intuitive to me. I felt like Crescent yeah. Moon's board was quite hard to read, and I felt like its player guides weren't welcoming enough to get me into the space of the game. And this is... My problem with it isn't necessarily that it's like a bad game, I just think that it's not as accessible or interesting as games like Root, which go further into their asymmetry and create more int- interesting board states than crescent moons i think yeah, that there is absolutely everyone you're right that everyone fills a role but i don't know how much flexibility there is within that role if that makes sense and i would be interested to see how it shakes out over multiple games whether a player who is the caliph just goes well i just build towns and that's my job and you fill this job and that's what you do for the game and it's more of an ecosystem it's a simulation of players bouncing off one another they're filling boots rather than sort of owning a character they're not wearing the full suit you know what i mean <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that is possible and definitely there's some readability. I I I I struggle teaching the game. I thought it was I thought it was going to be an easier teach than it was. Yeah. That said, I think, you know, I think we're going to be playing more Crescent Rune, so I think maybe let's stick a pin in this discussion for now. Uh, but, you know, I'm not going to take the final point away from you. Um, <laughs> the one thing I will say is that when I played Dune, I've played it 3 times and in each of those 3 times I've played it, I wanted it to be over by the end. That's broadly true of the Game of Thrones war game as well. Mm. Root, I'm distanced enough from my review, but I remember every time I played it, it was like there was always one player around the table every time I played Root who who was frustrated by the end. And that can be true of Crescent Moon as well. Um, Crescent Moon, for all the fact that, yes, it was wonky, yes, we had trouble reading the board, yes, I didn't teach it half as well as I should have, (laughs) I really enjoyed our play of Crescent Moon, and it ended, and I was not sad that it ended, but, like, I was... I was really satisfied by how it ended and I'm really excited to get it to the table again. So
1: I will say that I think I was that player around the table who was unsatisfied by Crescent Moon. And I think that's telling when I was the player who won. Because in that game, I felt like I won as a result of neglect rather than action. Like I did, I feel like I had the least grasp on the systems that game. I felt like I was sort of, you know, flailing around in a ball pit and and struggling to stand up. And yet somehow I came out on top just by having sat on a territory and no one taking it away from me. I think that like maybe in future games of Crescent Moon we'll know we're doing a bit more to counter that stuff. But to me, I felt like I didn't engage with the systems as well as i could have and and my reward was winning the game and that's what sets that thing sort of in me that's thinking that maybe crescent moon is is a job where you fill you fill shoes rather than actively sort of pursue a role you're just doing your job to some extent and i want to see how that shakes out over multiple plays
0: i don't know i think that you say you're filling sh- okay you say you're filling shoes but i maybe this is just a result of me playing the sultan but I remember turns in routes where you know I might wait twenty minutes for my turn, but my turn is relatively obvious. What I have to do, mm. like I the I. I In Crescent Moon, I always felt like I was choosing between at least two or three actions and then within those, the specificity of how exactly to, I don't know, if I do a move action, where exactly to move my troops or if I buy cards, Mm. which cards exactly to buy. I did feel like there was flex there.
1: I wonder if there's a framing thing there because you say that Crescent Moon is kind of framed as almost like a negotiation game. And I think that a lot of my games of Root became negotiation games, especially when you bring in the Riverfolk, the Otter Company, they become Mm. more in sort of inherently political um, and I wonder if that's just an, an an issue of of how you frame the game. Uh, I think one of the reasons I'm optimistic is that out of,
0: obviously, the lot of us around the table playing it, I knew the game the most and I've come away with it in awe. Like, the most in awe. Yeah. But I think that maybe, if I'm being generous to myself as to why I think you might have had a bad time in the first play, is like, I can see how this is a negotiation game and I can see how... Any action that any player would take is reliant on discussing that move with one other player on the table, which I think is really cool. But I totally agree to your point that until you pass exactly how it works, it's impossible to have those negotiations because, you know, the board is a little inscrutable to read. Who will win a fight is a little tricky to know. Exactly how other players score victory points is something you have to memorize. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, like, certainly the fact that I had such a difficult time teaching how combat and how influence battles work. And then after (laughs) we finished the game, I was like, oh, my God, it's so simple. It's just written in an awkward way in the manual. But Mm. I could, yeah. So I think if this is a negotiation game, it requires a level of sort of competence from all players, and you're not going to have that in the first place. Certainly a tricky first play. Yeah. I, if I, you know. If you have respect or trust for me and my opinions, I, I'm which very I, happy. Which I just,
1: this. I just to get it out there. I really, I don't, obviously.
0: Okay, so, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna force you then <laughs> to come to my house, continue to play,
1: <laughs> even though you have no none of this belief that I do that there might be a really good game. Hiding under here. I think I, I think know. there is a really solid game in there. I think it is a solid game. I just think that to get into comparisons, like it's not as weird as Dune. It's not as ambitious as Root and it's not as rich as Pax Premier. I, I, I really, I came away not wanting to play Dune ever again.
0: <laughs> I really did. Like, I think especially if you have no love for the source material, that game is impossible yeah, to Yeah, I suppose.
1: The thing that I think is like my question, right? That I want answered by like the next the next podcast that we'll do on Crescent Moon, the next chat we have about Crescent Moon, right, is that... I want I to do it as a two-header video review, I, where we just headbutt each that other. That could be very... You, we, we could literally headbutt each other live on video. People would, people <laughs> would enjoy that. But I want to know, right, if that by the second play, it's a meaningful enough streamlining of the systems that you have in those games to warrant this idea that it's like a simplified or easier or stronger version of those games. Because I think for all of its oddness and all of its sort of things that don't quite work, I think Root is, for my money, more interesting, more rich, uh, especially with all the expansions that have now come out for it. So that's my question about Crescent Moon is that in this second game, will it click in a way that means that I find those base systems more interesting than I find Roots, I guess. I have no
0: argument that Root is the more colourful and, <laughs> you know, th- and, and theoretically, like, interesting game. But the two things I would say is, first off, I don't know that you have to buy this or Root. Like, I think oh, sure. and Root are certainly different enough that yeah, if you're into yeah. war You were just saying to me when we did your collection video, which is up on the YouTube channel. People should definitely check it out. We did a video walking people through Tom's collection. But you were just saying you lack people smashing against other people games oh, you know this like is just
1: that this is not that <laughs> uh, I, I it's what I want from that genre, but yeah <laughs> it's it's um, much yeah. smarter than that it's you know it's two people smashing against each other whilst the other people sort of like put bets on what's gonna happen around the edges and I love that but yeah. it's not a, you know a head-to-head fighty game.
0: No, no, no. It's, it's Certainly, it's a peculiar box. We've just spent like half an hour talking about it. You might have to edit this down. This is bonkers. Um, because <laughs> it's, it's bonkers specifically because this was just a first impression game. And, you know, we're going to play it again and probably get some more coverage on the site. Unless our next game is a disaster.
1: So, the next game we're going to talk about on this podcast is... Bear Raid. Uh, This is a stock trading game designed by Ryan Courtney of Pipeline and Curious Cargo fame and it's published by BoardGameTables.com. You are going to be an investor and you want to make some money. Uh, On the table, you've got this selection of companies in the middle, each of which has a few different characteristics. They've got a big column of stocks you can buy, you've got a price tracking cube to show much how those stocks cost, and you've got an event card. And the events next to the companies, these are like the heart of the game. Uh, On these, you've got a list of ways that the price can change for that company. So they start at 25 and that might go up and down. And the value in dice pips that's needed to change that price. But Tom, yeah, I mentioned dice. Yeah, this game has loads of dice. Uh, each company has a little pool of dice next to the board where the total visible pips on those dice is really important for the way that it interacts with the events. So let's say that the event is TV stock guy hype. Uh, if you have 20 or more visible dice pips in the uh, on those dice next to that company, that stock price is going to jet up by $25 a share according to the event. But if you've got like Four or less or zero pips visible then the stock price is going to tank by 10 or 15 dollars and each of these events is like a little bit different so some will reward low values of dice some will reward high values some will change depending on how many stocks were bought or shorted that round and we should talk about shorting or i should ramble about shorting real quick this is the only way that you can gain money in this game by shorting stocks selling them and hoping to buy them back at a lower price cashing in the difference so fundamentally that's a hugely risky way of making any cash in the game and it creates huge problems for the player but bear Aid, like wants you to create problems for yourself and then solve them by using the kit that the game gives you so i should explain what you can do on your turn uh, you can buy stock you can sell stock which is nice and simple or you can take as many dice as you want from a company which means you'll manipulate the values of that company in real time The trouble is that at the end of the round, you could only have five dice behind your screen. Any excess goes in this bag that will shuffle and dispense this bunch of dice afterwards, which throws all this randomness into the market. But what you can do is you can kind of withhold dice for companies you want to tank, or you can flood the market with that kind of color, hoping that you're going to pull out a bunch of those dice and have a boom in that stock's price. But ultimately, your fortunes are going to rest on like these big, swingy, splashy dice rolls. I think it's quite hard to describe Bear Raid on a podcast. I sort of launched into explaining it with little room for anything else because I sort of wanted to get a picture of what it is in your listeners' heads. Uh, but it's a very visual game. But it's also super intuitive. <laughs> you, you, say, you say visual,
0: I think it's just colourful. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't necessarily mean that as a dig. like Because each of the companies you're buying and selling from has all of their components are a really vivid red or green mm. or blue, and then all the dice are those colours. So it's like it's a game where you might buy five big red circle stocks and then your friend picks up ten red di- or like six red dice and then at the end of the round you roll four red dice and then you move <laughs> the red token and it like... And you've lost all your are- money. <laughs> Yeah, and then suddenly, and then you look at your board and go, "Oh, hang on, that means I'm on negative negative four hundred dollars." I think I was really admiring you boldly launching into a description of an economic game that is very hard to describe. Um, I would try and help the readers by s- the readers, the listeners, <laughs> by saying, uh, "Bear raid is a game where you look at the dice that are on the board in front of you." And there's like 14 pips on the blue dice. So it shows the blue company is going to go up in value. So you go, great. And you buy four blue shares. And then your friend spends their turn taking all the blue dice in front of that company. (laughs) And you go, ah, because that means now, according to the event on the blue company, which might be like, you know, CEO can't get off Twitter or whatever. Because now the number of pips next to that company is zero. um, It's now instead going to drop you know, in value. So all those shares you bought are about to become worth even less money. Um, or will they? Because as players at the end of the round don't, as you say, dice in a bag, you pull them out. Maybe maybe the blue company will surface or not depending on how, what dice which players keep around their screen. Mm-hmm. I f- I feel like I just repeated what you said, but but with, nice. with like more enthusiasm and
1: more practicality. I think any way of getting this game into people's heads because it's really quite hard to describe. I think the better, um, but I want to talk about like how it feels, right? Because I think the thing that I love about Bear Aid is that because you can only make money by shorting stock, you have this feeling. Consistently- Wait, what? No, that's not tr- true. Oh, you mean only because you buy shit? Well, yeah. I mean, shorting it. <laughs> okay. I <laughs> you right, disagree with to- the game's description of shorting in that I think that it's like you can buy or short, but really you're just selling. Okay, listen.
0: Not to you know that you know the judo throw where you shoulder throw someone like over your shoulder and you really flip their flip their body like yeah. into the air. Yeah. Right? I don't mean to judo throw you in <laughs> front of the bus here. <laughs> But I feel like part of your love for this game is because you don't have as firm a grasp as I do on what shorting stocks is. Yeah, I do. Sure. Okay, okay. It's just you sound very excited about the concept, and it's like... You said the only way you can make money in this game is by shorting stocks. It's like, well, but if you have 10 stocks, I mean, according to how this game models it, I don't know in real life, but if you have 10 stocks in Bear Raid and you, quote, short five of them, that's functionally the same as you buying 10 stocks and then selling five stocks. So it is possible in Bear Raid, like, uh, you you know what I mean?
1: like Kind of, but the the thing that's interesting, right, the thing that I want to get at is that let's say you short five uh, banana stocks to 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 make some money, right? The problem is that because of the way that shorting works, you, you owe those stocks, right? You now owe five banana stocks in t- to Oh no
0: no no yeah this makes sense, yeah, because the if at some point you will have to I, I see what you mean. Nothing in bare red is immediate. If I have ten yes. stocks and then short five, those those shorted stocks no wait no no I get that money immediately yeah you get the money immediately but then you now owe that many stocks so you need but to buy but not find... if I had five stocks to begin oh, with if short, I have of five course. and short five then it's just a buying instead yes. yeah, of yeah, yeah. the yeah. difference between Bear Raid and other games is you can go into the negative which is what shorting is yes exactly you can, if you have zero stocks and short ten then now you owe ten stocks mm-hmm. at whatever value that company has at the end of the game which if the company goes bankrupt and those were the big best moments in our game of Bear Raid like a company would go bankrupt because it's share price would dip below zero, and then some player would go, ah, ha, ha because they owed 10 stocks to that company. <laughs> the company doesn't exist, and so they gleefully flip all those tokens out from behind their screen because they, they don't have to pay them back anymore.
1: Yeah, that's what I love about it, right, is that you you short all those stocks, you know, you're thinking that you're going to do, you, you know, you're going to make a bunch of money, you're going to buy a stock that's maybe on the rise, but then you have this other problem, this fire that you then need to go and put out later on in the game, and so much of the game is creating problems for yourself. Like, I, very early on, uh, was really proud of the fact that I was shorting a stock that was going to go bust. I was like, oh yeah, this is going is going downhill. But then another player absolutely rammed it full of dice, so its stock price soared upwards, and my shorted stocks then got split. I've now got twice as much debt that I now owe, and I spent much of the game just trying to solve that problem. Um, I think that that's... It, <laughs> maybe I don't understand stocks that well, but it is a game that really feels like gaming the stock market more than any other game that has stocks in it. Like, those dice, your fortune's hitting the rocks. Oh, it's delightful. I will give... Okay, so there's a bunch of stock games which are basically
0: players buy stocks, dice are rolled, and the stock goes up or down. Like, that is the the cornerstone of my favourite stock game, Panic on Wall Street, which (laughs) um, divides players into people who sell stocks and people who buy stocks. And they are playing quite literally two different games because each group will have a winner. Like, the people who sell stocks, only one of those players among all the players who sell stocks will win that game. And that is completely separate from the fact that the people they're selling stocks to are trying to make money. Mm. Um, And that game's extra good if you put... like Because if you are playing in a big room and you put the people who are selling stocks to different parts of that room, then as the time limit is running out, players have to run around the room to different desks (laughs) to try and buy. It's terrific. But... What I like about Bear Raid is what it adds to this, this stock go up, go down dice game is the ability to short stocks, which is basically not just buying stocks, but going into the negative in how many of those stocks that you have. I own negative 10 stocks in Tesla. Which means at some point I need to buy ten stocks in Tesla. Hopefully they'll be cheap when I have to do that. That's cool, love it. I think that should be in every stock game. It's intrinsically hilarious to, so like, some players are like I've got five stocks in Ford, and you're like I've got negative eight thousand stocks in Amazon. <laughs> like that is that is just funny. Yeah. But structurally, what you're actually doing in bear aid of taking your turn of either ooh buying stocks or ooh selling stocks or ooh taking dice. I didn't like, Mm -hmm. I, I, I I felt it was like, not clunky necessarily. It wasn't bad, but there just wasn't anything there for me. Um, And I felt it peculiar that like, with, like you say, the big swings, the beautiful things in Bear Raid are like, rolling the dice. Oh no, I've lost my ass. Like that can happen without us all having to sit diligently and wait, you know, four minutes for our next turn. And then I didn't like the fork of like having to take dice to screw over a player rather than trying to buy yourself something myself, like it just it the structure of it did not click with me. And I usually like Ryan Courtney games, but I do love the mechanic of shorting stocks. I like that. That should be in every stock game. <laughs>
1: yeah i think that for me i think i have similar sort of like concerns um about it where it's like i think it feels a little too long and i think we played it quite Mm -hmm. slowly i think as maybe a pacier game you know with maybe you know i think that you could get through it with doing sort of these bigger splashier riskier turns it would maybe a little bit more engaging but there were points where you were waiting a while for your turn and you're right that necessarily just stealing a load of dice from one of the companies just so you can keep them behind your screen feels genius and mean the first time but then when you're doing it because you have to the sixth time in the game it feels a little bit maybe a little bit miserable but i wonder if the more times you play it you'll build up more of an appreciation for that sort of flow and working out that well maybe if you keep a little you know you stay a little bit liquid you can buy a load of stocks in the company that that person is relying on just absolutely you know jetting upwards next turn
0: yeah I, I I could here's the thing I could just be thick like that could be the problem <laughs> I mean well although I did win our game so that that's, that speaks poorly of the rest no, of me. you no you did like, not I did no you I did not win that
1: game of bear raid I won that game of bear raid that's not true I what won- did you I'm gonna go and ask the two other people who who played the game and but Chris Pratt. Chris and Luke and they'll tell they'll tell you they'll put you it's Luke race. in your flat right now he's as not, as as not I unfortunately I can message him hold on. Hang on, I could, I could text Chris. Yeah, let me text. I'll text.
0: Where's my phone? I'll be right back. Chris, I am recording a podcast. (laughs) Do you remember who won our game of bear raid?
1: This is going to be so embarrassing for one of us.
0: (laughs) I swear it was me. I swear it was me. I really do. I was like, this will either be a counterpoint or a point to me saying I am thick. (laughs) Okay, so anyway, like, oh God. Completely lost lost where we were at with Let let, let me think, let me think. Puss thing in. Um, Oh, yeah, okay. Right, as I say, anyway, I may or may not be thick. That's, we might receive a text letting me know whether that's true in the next five minutes. Um, but it's still a Ryan Courtney game, right? And Ryan Courtney used to work at NASA, IRL, very clever man. Pipeline is like a comedically taxing economic game, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think the thing that annoyed me about Bear Raid is that unlike other stock games I've played, where, you know, you'd like make some rough estimates and no, oh, no, you've lost all your money, ha ha ha. Like Bear Raid, it's... It had a bit of that Ryan Courtney crunch that I remember from playing Curious Cargo and Pipeline, where like I had to look at the board and kind of like go a bit cross-eyed and be like, okay, well. If people take their dice and an average of like four dice come out the bag, 3, you know, 3.5 pips average on a dice.
1: So statistically, it'll go up or down.
0: Like it was just a lot of maths and work. You know what?
1: You know what? We are back at uh, Illumination again, where you were playing an irreverent monk reverently. I was playing my reverent monk irreverently. I played Bear Uh, Raid purely on gut. Just like I reckon that if I know if I know my pal, that stock's going up next round. I got a man on the inside. He's telling me that the numbers they're going sky high, and I think, well, I think I won, but we'll find out. I got a te- they- I t- I got a text back from
0: Chris. What does it say? It doesn't matter what it says, Tom. It's not it's, <laughs> the, the contents of the text is not important or relevant. But I don't know. Anyway. Yes, you won. All right, you won. <laughs> you won the game of Bear Aid. You won the game of Bear Aid. I thought that I won. And in my head, I did. This is like a, a sort of 90s thriller where like it got it just I've constructed some kind of alternate reality in my head where I win all games. <laughs> and uh and Chris has sent a follow-up WhatsApp message saying pointing out that you actually won both games that evening, Crescent <laughs> Luna and Bear Aid. I'm sick of this podcast. What else do we have to say before I can leave?
1: Yeah, let's let's shut it down. So uh Bear Aid. Uh, maybe a good game, this maybe sucks. not, depending on who you believe. This sucks. Thinks it sucks. I think it's no, pretty No, I just,
0: this situation sucks. Bear Aid's fine. <laughs> I don't necessarily want to play it again, but I do really love that mechanic of Shorting sucks. Yeah,
1: to put a cap on my thoughts on Bear I think it's strong. I think that it's really, it feels very nobody good
0: cares. Nobody cares, nobody what you, cares what your final thoughts are. It's not, it's nobody's <laughs> Uh yeah, uh, it's it's not over yet. We have to do an outro, so... Well, you've got to you know, talk about
1: uh, the Mind Management app as well. Oh.
0: Okay, right. Gonna race through this. The publishers of Mind Management have told me that uh, the, the app, there is now an app for Mind Management, the hidden <laughs> movement game, I know, uh, which, okay, here, you have to do three gasps, one after each point on this time. Yeah, sure. It lets you play Mind Management solo. <laughs> it lets you play it co-op. Yeah. And it adds new shift packages. <laughs> yeah, so ah, <laughs> uh, you 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 went all in on that, and I love it. Yeah, so um, my review of Mind Management that you'll find on our YouTube channel. Excuse me, it's a hidden movement game that I really liked, and you couldn't play it co-op, but now you can. You can play excuse me against an AI who is uh, who's going around. <laughs> Recruiting people, and you gotta find them. How are you gonna do that? You're gonna use it, you can do it with an app. Um, but also, the inclusion of new shift packages is cool. Yeah, this design. is a central mechanic to mind management where there's all these little mini expansions that change how the game plays. Um, and it sounds like they've used the fact that there's now an app to add new kinds of shift packages so that even your battles against the app are gonna be different every That's time. So cool. It is cool. I can't believe I missed, just spent this whole podcast, podcast and missed the chance to. Uh, say that y- 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 there's an Islamophobic element of you as to why you think Root is better than Crescent Moon. Wow! Why what? you got to deny Muslim representation? That com-
1: where's this coming from? <laughs> I
0: just I'm looking at my computer monitor and there's a picture of the Crescent Moon boxer and I'm like, oh, I missed a trick there. Yeah, I, uh, I yeah. think
1: I think you're like you know uh, well I, I don't know I think that you're you know you're just you're just a uh, stock investor phobic about bear Aid, yeah <laughs> how's that yeah, feel yeah i've
0: really i've really got it out for those bankers yeah uh, those, <laughs> yeah those, exactly those day traders. they're
1: underrepresented
0: yeah uh, okay well it sounds like we're equally bad thank you very much for listening to the shut up Down podcast everybody i cannot believe chris texted you i can't <laughs> believe i was so confident that i won that game and, and chris chris remembered he could have just texted me be like i don't remember wins yep. have a great day
1: i'm about to like in in you know because uh, my friend normally takes a while to, to to reply to a message, but, you know, in a couple of hours or so, I will make sure to screenshot the result of his message as well, even though you know the answer already.
0: What if he says, Quinn's won?
1: Oh, <laughs> that'll go <laughs> in an addendum. Uh,
0: thank you very much for listening to the Shadow of podcast, everybody. I might be back. I don't know. I might just be sick of this BS. Oh, uh, Yeah.
1: See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.